This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 10th of September 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up... As the Queen herself did with such unswerving devotion, I too now solemnly pledge myself throughout the remaining time God grants me to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. The Queen is dead. Long live the King. On this special edition of the programme, we'll look back at the reign of Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth II, examining her contribution to the fabric of society and forward to what we can expect under the reign of King Charles III. Stay with us. We'll begin today with an update from our Westminster correspondent, Vincent McAvinney. Uh, Vincent, the news of Her Majesty's death broke on Thursday. Can you tell us what's happened since? Well, a, a remarkable loss in, in a small space of time. It does really bring to mind the idea that, uh, you know, sometimes... Uh, not much can happen in a decade, and then a decade can happen uh, in a week because we have had extraordinary pictures. The uh, arrival in London again of King Charles III with his wife, the Queen Consort Camilla. They pulled up at Buckingham Palace, uh, and in a, in a in a way, we saw what his reign will be like and how different it is already. He got out of the car. He walked along the rope line, uh, shaking hands with members of the public, having his hand kissed. A woman even leant forward and kissed him on the cheek. People were paying their condolences to him uh, and wishing him for the best uh, in his reign and singing spontaneously, God save the king, which still get, takes a bit of getting used to. He looked along the flowers and tributes that had been left and then we had this amazing shot of himself and Camilla Parker Bowles walking alone into Buckingham Palace, their new uh, home for the first time as, as king and queen, with the royal standard raised for them. Uh, and then he recorded a message which went out last night at 6pm UK time, in which he paid tribute to his mother and also... Uh, made it clear what his reign will be like, that he had said that whilst I have engaged in charity work and campaigning, that will be for others now to take up. It was a signal that he won't be the sort of campaigning monarch some had feared he would be, uh, that he was appointing his son, Prince William, and uh, his uh, daughter-in-law, uh, Kate Middleton, as the new prince and princess of Wales. Princess of Wales, of course, a title that hasn't been used since the death of uh, Diana, Prince William's mother. He also paid tribute and said his love for Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, as they build their life overseas. And it was quite an emotional speech, even though it, it was pre-recorded. You could see genuine, at the end, uh, emotion behind his eyes as he wished his mother a peaceful transition into the afterlife, quoting from Hamlet. So it has been quite, quite a, a period. There was then a service for members of the public and members of the government at St. Paul's Cathedral last night. Uh, and today we are in for quite a busy day as well. 
Uh, because he's actually going to be confirmed as king. I'm sure there's some special uh, word yes. that's used so for that. So it's called, of course, it is called the Accession Council. And of course, none of us have, have covered this or been through this before, but it'll take place this morning starting at 10 a.m. Uh, at St. James's Palace, uh, where members of the Accession Council, who are members of the Privy Council and members of the government, will go. And this dates back hundreds of years to when there were likely disputes uh, after a monarch had passed as to who would the, the the actual heir. But this will be a proclamation uh, that Charles is now the king, King Charles III. Uh, and from 11, uh, the flags which have been uh, flying across the country at half-mast will be raised to full-mast for a period of 24 hours to mark the arrival of the new king. There'll be a royal uh, gun salutes fired from Hyde Park and from the Tower of London, where I'm on my way to now. Uh, and then senior members of the government and MPs, if they want, will swear an oath to King Charles III in the House of Commons this afternoon, as more of those uh, parliamentary tributes are paid in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And there will be another audience between uh, the Prime Minister, Liz Truss, and uh, King Charles. Uh, and then there will be an audience as well with the full cabinet and King Charles. So lots going on today. We have more of an idea of the timetable of the next week. We're still not absolutely confirmed the date of the funeral, but we expect it to be Monday the 19th, uh, so uh, a week on Monday's time. And it is likely to be, without hyperbole, probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest funerals in history uh, in terms of those who will be coming. It'll be many, many world leaders. You've got at least about 57 with all the heads of the Commonwealth likely to come. President Joe Biden has signaled that he will be coming as well. I think you could be talking well over 100 world leaders coming to this. Uh, and London, which has a population of around roughly 9 million people, uh, there's expected to be huge travel to the capital. Some saying as many as 30 million people might come. It could be the busiest day in London's history. Uh, Vinny, just before you go, we are in a, a period of official mourning, 10 days, I believe. We are in this period of official mourning, and there's been a bit of confusion about this, but a, a guide has gone out from the palace, uh, and, and essentially it is it is leaving it at people's discretion. So obviously the royal household is in mourning. There is procedure being followed when it comes to uh, the flags and the attire that staff are wearing. Uh, but the message does seem to be it is at the discretion of businesses, of sporting associations as to what they do. And so things have happened like the BBC cancelled the last night of the proms, which was meant to be tonight. Uh, the Premier League has cancelled football fixtures this weekend. But others are, are carrying on. Other sports associations are, are, are doing their own thing. Uh, businesses, are, we think, will probably a lot of them will close uh, on the day of the funeral itself, which we're still waiting to hear if it's a bank holiday. But the message is that that while they they hope that people will mourn and mark the passing of Her Majesty the Queen after 70 years on the throne, uh, that they do want life to continue. It is obviously a very difficult time uh, in terms of the economy, in terms of the cost of living crisis. We do know, for instance, actually, that there is emergency legislation which needs to be passed in order for Liz Truss's energy freezing plans to get through in time. So there will be a splitting of Parliament at some point to rush that legislation through. And interestingly, that will then be 
the first piece of legislation. In the way that British legislation works, it makes its way through Parliament between the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And then all laws then go to the monarch to receive what is called royal assent, which is where it becomes the law. It is signed into law. Uh, the Queen herself passed around 4,000 or so acts of parliament, uh, which were bills and then become acts of parliament when she signs them. So the bill at some point will land on the desk in the red box of the new King Charles III. It'll be his first bill, which he signs into law, turning it into an act. Vinny, thank you very much indeed. That's Vincent Lacavini talking to us there from central London. Well, I'm joined now in the studio by David Banks, who's former public affairs advisor to the Commonwealth Secretary General and Charles Hecker, senior partner at Control Risk. Uh, many thanks to both of you for coming in. David, uh, your job brought you into contact with Her Majesty. Yes, it's rather interesting just hearing Vinnie speaking about the uh, accession council and the arrangements of what's going to take place at uh, at uh, St James's Palace today because uh, the Secretary General is based in Marlborough House, which is immediately opposite uh, Friary Court, where the proclamation will be made later today. And in fact, um, members of the Privy Council will be gathering in Marlborough House and preparing to then cross the road for that that accession council. Um, and so over the years that I was working there with the Secretary General, um, I had the glorious privilege of occupying um, as my office the room that had been the sitting room of the Queen's grandmother and of her great-grandmother. Um, it had a lovely view with a balcony looking out over the Mall. Um, and when the Queen came to the throne, her grandmother was still alive and, uh, and in fact, watched her own son's funeral from the window of what was my office, <laughs> uh, the funeral of King George VI. Um, she then died a few months later and she made it clear that she didn't want the uh, arrangements for, print, for the, uh, the, the late Queen's coronation to be delayed because of any court mourning for her. Um, and so it's interesting to have that span, but also to see how closely bound up with the Queen's reign, the Commonwealth and her commitment to it, so that when Queen Mary died, the Queen decided that Marlborough House should be granted for the use as the headquarters of the Commonwealth. And the Commonwealth was tremendously important to the Queen. We keep hearing uh, th this phrase, the Commonwealth and our realms and territories. Um, tell us a little bit about what it is, how it works and why it meant so much to her and indeed continues to have that resonance with King Charles III. Well, I think it's interesting. There's been a lot of reference uh, to the speech that the Queen made to the Commonwealth on her 21st birthday from Cape Town. And, of course, it's significant that, that both her 21st birthday and then eventually her accession to the throne happened in Commonwealth countries in Africa, the first, the, the 21st birthday in, 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 in South, Af at South Africa and then accession to the throne when she was in uh, Kenya. Um, and as I say, that speech has been referred to often, but uh, something which I think has not particularly been borne in mind is the, her first Christmas broadcast as Queen. And I might read what she said. That was in 1953, when after her coronation, she went on a, a, a Commonwealth tour, uh, taking many, many months. Um, and she said of the Commonwealth... 
and now I'm quoting, it bears no resemblance to the empires of the past. It is an entirely new conception built on the highest qualities of the spirit of man, friendship, loyalty, and the desire for freedom and peace. To that new conception of an equal partnership of nations and races, I shall give myself heart and soul every day of my life. And I think when you consider that that was in the early 50s, particularly that commitment to an equal partnership of nations and races is very telling because generally that was perhaps not the mood at that time mm. um, in political circles. Absolutely. In in your role at that the Secretariat, I, I know that you organised a, a lot of events. You 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 were on on the committee of the Jubilee. You were on. Uh, you uh, I, I think had something to do with the Queen's uh, going down the Thames on the barge, uh, for instance. It was very famous images we remember from that. And so, doing all that, you must have come into contact with her personally. I wonder if you had any recollections. Yes. What was remarkable, as you say, the, the Commonwealth was such a vitally important motivating factor throughout the Queen's reign. But whenever she walked into a room and there were people from the countries of the Commonwealth, particularly young people, her face just lit up. There was nothing that, that animated her more than anything to do with the Commonwealth. And, of course, whenever she spoke to people from wherever they came, she had personal recollections of well, the particular district that they came from or of the people who were significant in their country's history. And so it was very much a, a, a two-way connection that people uh, felt drawn to her, but she was, without any uh, affectation at all, drawn to people from wherever they came. And um, it was that, that uh, Diamond Jubilee uh, flotilla down the, the Thames in, uh, in, in 2012, just over 10 years ago, was a remarkable event. And uh, I happened to be hosting with the then Foreign Secretary William Hague, the heads of government um, and uh, on the barge that came immediately behind the Queen. And it, it was fascinating to see um, how uh, connected they were. But also on that barge, I remember, for example, was the, the chief rabbi. And it's interesting that the chief rabbi is not just the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, he's the chief chief rabbi of the Commonwealth. Um, and so it's amazing how there are so many aspects of faith and of nationhood which are all bound up, both with the Crown and with the Commonwealth. Absolutely. I'd like to bring in Charles Hecker now, because, Charles, obviously, uh, this has been reported throughout the world. Is it surprising to you that this is the most important global story? Yes and no. Um, you know, the Queen is, the late Queen is not just, was not just the head of state in the United Kingdom and not just the head of the Commonwealth. Um, the Queen was an international figure of inestimable prominence and importance. Um, and somebody who has crossed 15 prime ministers, um, a number of American presidents, prime ministers, wars, conflicts. Um, she has been a presence globally 
um, from the moment and even before she became Queen Elizabeth II. And, and so um, in part out of respect to her, in part um, out of an estimation of her role globally um, and also a little bit of royal mania, um, it is not surprising um, to see the passing of, of a significant global figure like this commemorated uh, around the world on the front pages of newspapers and, and, and from seats of government everywhere. I mean, but even for Republicans, even for people who really are anti the monarchy, there's been a, a very surprising outpouring of feeling. I found myself on my own standing up for the national anthem. <laughs> I mean, it, did, it goes that deep. That's right. And I suppose this also reflects the, the dual nature uh, of the Queen's role um, as, as the head of state and also as somebody who on an extremely personal level was very meaningful to millions of people in the United Kingdom and around the world. And, and you cannot help but feel something about the death of, of a woman, of an individual who was so selfless in, in her devotion and dedication um, to her subjects in the UK and, and, and around the world. And I suppose that whether you're a monarchist or a Republican or have, you know, or somewhere in between, part of your reaction to what happened on Thursday was the reaction to the passing of a genuinely remarkable woman and individual. Mm. Uh, David, back to you and, and, and the whole um, procedure now, uh, because, of course, as, as, we, as we know, you just described what will happen uh, with the Privy Council meeting, the, the King Charles actually being, what is the exact term again? Okay. Well, the accession council. The accession council. Um, but then, of course, comes the funeral. Uh, yes. Well, one thing that is interesting, of course, is that the, 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 the accession of uh, the Prince of Wales to become King Charles III, that was seamless. But it was not automatic that he should become the head of the Commonwealth. That is not hereditary, and it's not automatically linked to the Crown. And there had been... A, the last time when King George VI died, there were only seven countries in the Commonwealth, and so it was quite easy to contact. There are now 56. And until a few years ago, there was the expectation that all the heads of government of the Commonwealth would have to be consulted as to when the Queen uh, died, who should then follow on as head of the Commonwealth. Um, but fortunately, that was resolved at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting four years ago in London in 2018, when the heads of government decided then that Prince Charles would in due course, become head of the Commonwealth. And it was, I think, a great comfort to the Queen to have that resolved. Um, and um, we see the wisdom of having it resolved now so that this is not something which is, uh, is up in the air or contentious in any way. And so it, that, too, has been a seamless transition. But those heads of government meeting were uh, high points, I know, in the Queen's. They normally take place every two years. Um, and uh, I remember being with her at one in, in, in Perth, in Western Australia, um, in, uh, in, in, in 2011. A wonderful one was in 2015 in Malta, um, because, of course, the happiest years of the Queen's married life were spent in Malta. 
when as the wife of a Royal Naval Officer, before she uh, became Queen, she was able to live the most normal life. Um, and I remember the driver that the government assigned me when oh, I was in Malta, uh, his uncle had been a band leader um, and who used to play at the Saturday night dances that the Queen and Duke of Edinburgh went to when they were living there, a naval life in Malta. Um, and he was so chuffed to be driving me around, he gave me a CD of his uncle's band <laughs> playing. That's a wonderful story. What is going to happen in terms of organisation now? Because all of those 56 heads of Commonwealth countries are going to want to be at the funeral. Yes, the uh, the draw of um, the Queen as a person, as Charles said, you know that it was that she was more than just a head of state or head of Commonwealth. You know, that she she was the heart of a nation and the heart of the Commonwealth, and that personal draw and deep affection and respect. Uh, I mean, it, 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 as I say, it animated the Commonwealth, but it also um, was... Uh, you could see prime ministers and presidents who, in their own uh, nations, are treated with the utmost deference and respect, quite rightly, but falling over themselves to uh, to speak to the Queen or to be seated next to her, and uh, be, just because of the the, the great sense of honour. And I mean, it it, it wasn't stardust. What it really was, was uh, uh, an immense respect for somebody who they knew uh, saw her role as above politics. And I notice in the Times today, there's an article referring to, to soft power, but it was more than power. It was a great influence for good. Um, and the, the, the former Secretary General of the Commonwealth, Kamala Sharma, used to refer to the Commonwealth as a great go global good. And that, I think, is in large measure thanks to what the Queen did to build it up mm. through the 70 years that she was its head. Charles, I'd like to pick up on this idea of soft power because that really is uh, exactly what we're talking about here, isn't it? That's right. The, the Queen was the personification and, and the number one contributor to Britain's soft power globally. And, and, you know, by soft power, we mean that the global influence a country has that's not derived from its army or that's not derived from its seat on the UN Security Council, but its ability to influence events and to, to exert a certain type of power globally. And, and the monarchy, but in particular the late queen, queen personified was the number one source of Britain's global soft power um, in perhaps uncharacteristically um, eloquent and serious remarks made in the House of Commons yesterday. Uh, the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson called her the greatest statesman and diplomat alive mm. during her reign. Um, there will be three days of national mourning in Brazil out of respect to the Queen. President Putin, in spite of everything, wrote a letter of condolence. Um, and again, this reflection of the Queen's prominence 
um, on the pages of the international newspapers is a reflection of that soft power and put Britain, in spite of the fact that it has, you know, one of the wealthiest and largest armies in the world and a seat on the UN Security Council, put Britain at the table in a way globally that it might not have done um, were it not for the Queen. Now, of course, we keep saying she was above politics, but she was, as David said, the ultimate uh, uh, signatory to, to any new law that, that was passed. Uh, and it seems now a little ironic that the first uh, bill that uh, King Charles is going to have to sign is on energy, given that we know he has impeccable green credentials. And this energy bill, unfortunately, looks like it is rowing back from Britain's pledge to be carbon neutral by 2050. So it, it will be interesting to see how the king uh, positions himself um, in relation to this issue going forward. We know that the king has very strong feelings about the energy transition away from hydrocarbons and is himself a very green king, you might say. Um, in his speech yesterday, he acknowledged that his role will have to change. And in a way, while being thrust onto the world stage as the monarch, he will in a certain respect have to recede from it. But one of the things that we know is that the king once a week has an audience with the prime minister. And what we learned from previous prime ministers was the, the subtle pieces of advice that the queen gave them each week, particularly in the run-up to major international or bilateral summits. Um, and, and the king will have that role to play. This will become particularly important in the relationship between the United Kingdom and the United States. Um, as Prince Charles, he visited the United States more than 20 times, um, and that has to be up there with one of his most frequently visited countries. Um, and his position on energy, you might say, is slightly at odds um, with the United States' position on energy. And if there's a change in administration um, following the 2024 elections or a change in emphasis following the midterms, um, U.S. energy policy could be very strongly at odds with the king's views on, on energy. And that will be an extremely sensitive topic for him to negotiate going forward. Mm. David, how political will he be? I mean, he said absolutely categorically that he won't be, but there's got to be some sort of uh, element of it, surely. Yes, and I, you see, I think that is where the Commonwealth is an extremely valuable uh, means of working together with other countries because of the values of the Commonwealth, which are set out in the Commonwealth Charter, which the Queen signed on Commonwealth Day uh, in 2013 uh, with my fountain pen. Um, <laughs> but the... Um, the uh, the, the Commonwealth was in the forefront of alerting uh, the world to the dangers of climate change, you know, because, of course, it affects so many of the small member states, the small island states in the Pacific, particularly with, um, and in countries such as Maldives. And so in 1989, um, when the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting was in Malaysia, there was the Langkawi Declaration. Um, and so as long ago as that, the Commonwealth was mobilising uh, international action on these issues. And so in many ways, I think that the king, in his role as 
uh, as, as head of the Commonwealth, is able to make reference to those commitments. And when you've got commitments that are made by the heads of government of 56 countries... That has tremendous influence when it then comes to... I mean, I remember when we've had various COP uh, summits on climate change. Quite often, when there's been after weeks of wrangling and days when heads of government have been together and it's come to an impasse, there were occasions, for example, the Copenhagen COP, where... They said, well, look, we're not going to agree, but the Commonwealth a few weeks ago came to this agreement. Can we run with that? And there was an acceptance that because of the huge diversity of major economies, small economies, developed, uh, developing economies, and so therefore the nation, the United Nations mechanism coming together as COP were able to agree what had been hammered out within the more friendly and relaxed atmosphere of the Commonwealth. Mm, Charles, you're nodding along there. Yeah, I, I think, no, I think that David's absolutely right, and that is that the Commonwealth provides a very important um, global platform on which the king's environmental agenda can rest. Um, I think in the future the king will find globally a slightly more benign and welcoming environment for his um, position on, on hydrocarbons and fossil fuels. Um, I think we're just at the moment, and, and your reference to the law that he will sign in his first act as king, um, we're in a moment of incredible energy instability. There is a rush for the time being towards an energy security comfort zone, which in some cases means oil or gas, or in some countries even coal. I think that's a, a, a temporary phenomenon and that at some point the energy transition um, will resume and will accelerate once energy markets and energy supply chains iron themselves out in the wake of, of what's happening with Russian energy supply. And I think at that point, um, Prince Charles may actually be in a position to help accelerate that transition as well. Mm. Just finally, before we go, of course, a lot of the papers are saying that this might be the beginning of the end of royalty here in this country, that certainly it will be a very streamlined, slimmed down royal family. And I just wondered if we could get your thoughts on that, David. That's not what it looked like on the streets yesterday to me. I mean, I was the, the, the king drove into London just past the end of my street and the whole of the street was lined by people just to see him go past. That was quite apart from what the reception once he reached Buckingham Palace. So far, the king shows every sign of handling this transition extremely deftly and in a way that will resonate well with the public. And, and you've just heard broadcast comments all day yesterday and all morning this morning saying... We just have to get behind the king now. And, and, and that looks like where it's going. Charles Hecker, David Banks, thank you both very much indeed. That's all for this special edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. And don't forget to tune into tomorrow's edition of Monocle on Sunday with our editorial director, Tyler Brulé. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.